Okay, welcome to the Inside Outdoors TV podcast. Of course, I'm Shane Atwell. We've got Ashley Poole with us, and everybody knows... Not everybody. ...boss and the TV star, Tim Anello, and it's that time of year, midsummer, the dog days, if you will, and we're going to talk about some of the things that every hunter has to deal with at this time of the year, and the prep, and the preparation for the season the preparation for shooting your bow getting back in shape um you know and everything that goes with that is and then the preparation we have that would be extra outside of what the normal hunter has to do you know what when we're prepping dates times hunt schedules show times all of that so um it's a little bit different for us but at the same time we're the same hunter as everybody else out there we're trying to get things going we're trying to get in shape especially if you have those western hunts you better start getting on a treadmill and doing all the things that you got to do to make that hunt successful that we know starts right now because you can look back at the end of them and say i made this the way that it turned out because of what i did it during those dog days of summer mm-hmm. yeah to treat it like it's anything any different than you know, anything else you do in life, it's you are where you are because of your choices. And when you're halfway up the mountain and you're sucking air or you're sitting in the, you know, stand that you've never moved because whatever, you're just too lazy and you keep seeing the deer just out of range, you're there because of your choices. Yeah, and it's not always easy to do. No. I mean, <laughs> to get that. I think you have to, like everything else, if you wait on yourself to be motivated to do things, uh, you're just not going to do them. It's just more like a discipline. Um, yeah. Just make it part of your routine. And then, you know, there's also the part that you don't know. You know, Ashley, that first time you went out west hunting and mm-hmm. you're climbing the mountain, you don't know what you don't know. Right. Um, but looking back, you probably wish you'd done some research, looked into how to get in shape or something like that. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. When <laughs> we went on that elk hunt, I mean, Tim can attest, I was not prepared at all. And it wasn't even, it was a cow elk hunt. And sure, we went to a spot where not, I don't, Anthony said that not a cow, no cow has been killed up there. I'm pretty sure. Um. Only bulls. Yeah, they haven't gone up there to cow hunt just because yeah. of the location. Uh, you know, not that obviously by the number of elk we saw, it's not that cows can't be killed up there. Mm-hmm. Um, they just choose not to make that kind of a hike. Yeah, so sure it wasn't a bull hunt, but yeah, I got my booty kicked. That's for <laughs> sure. And it, it kind of, you know, that first hunt, I mean, that was my first hunt ever. And I think it was that first hunt that I realized, you know, you – you get what you get out of a hunt is what you put into it. Absolutely. And I, I think that goes into uh, summer prep as well. Like, yeah. And that's not a guy girl thing. That's not an age thing. No. Um, everybody who's been unprepared for a Western hunt like that knows it real quick. And even the guys that like my first one, I thought I've right. been killing it. And I had, I mean, I was in phenomenal shape the first time we went, but I was, what I didn't know was I'd never been at altitude like that. Right. And I thought I was in phenomenal shape. Well, I was for sea level. 
<laughs> well, and even... I, you know, the the for those that don't, you know, haven't kept up too much or whatever, but so Ashley is, you know, really just come on full time within the last few months. You know, she's been associated with the show for the last few years. And I mean, you you grew up sports. Oh yeah. You know, playing sports, um, you know, being active. So it's mm -hmm. not like you were just, you know, coming off the couch eating chips to no. climbing a mountain. Mm -mm. No, in high school I was, you know, playing volleyball, soccer and basketball. And at the time when I went on my first hunt, I was coaching basketball. So I was living somewhat of a physical life, but hunting is a whole nother level. I mean, it's muscles you've never used before. <laughs> it's mental toughness that you've never experienced yeah, before. Hiking. Yeah. Not, not hunting, but oh, well, I yeah. mean, sure. we were hunting, but you mean yeah. just hiking in yeah. general? Yeah, hiking in general, yeah. It's, it's well, they, they make a step mill, but um, mm -mm. it does not mimic the mountain. <laughs> and an Oklahoma breather like yeah. me, like, uh, <laughs> well, what is going on? <laughs> us flatlanders. And, and then, you know, there are certain things that, you know, being in Oklahoma, you can't prepare for. Um, you know, we had snow on that hunt. Mm-hmm. Yeah, about uh, four inches. About. So that that adds another element, you know, just the the weight on your shoes, having to, you know, lift your feet higher than normal. Mm -hmm. um, well, and another thing, too, I think for me was, you know, that hunt, I felt like we didn't, I mean, we didn't even kill on that hunt, let alone we didn't really see a whole lot of elk. So mentally... It's it's I th I feel like it may have been slightly different if we saw a bunch of elk, and Anthony's like, okay, we're gonna do this big hike. I'm like, all right, it's worth it because I know there's gonna be elk up there and it's gonna work out. But that whole trip, it, they were kind of scarce, so hiking up, I'm like, God, I feel like I'm doing this for nothing because I haven't even seen an elk. I feel like this whole trip. Wouldn't you agree? Looking back on it, we didn't see a whole lot of. Elk. I agree with what you're saying as far as your mental energy, you know, and push can be better or worse depending on the situation as far as the animals. Mm -hmm. um, was the fact that we weren't seeing too many animals really what caused your mental fight to no. be so tough? No. No, but it I certainly mean, added to it. Yeah, so kind of... That's where, and that's where I was going with it's, you know, everything we're talking about, you know, the things you can't really train for in Oklahoma or your location would be elevation, mm -hmm. um, temperature, and, you know, maybe some obstacles as far as snow or whatever. But you've got, you know, you can train with weight, you can train with distance, you can train with, the, you know, the steepness of the climb, um, but, you know, uh, we've, we've all come from, I would say, athletic backgrounds to some extent. That doesn't make it athletes, but... <laughs> right. Um, but, uh, you know, the, I think what people short themselves on in training that we've all sort of found out in our own way is, is um, the mental training. Absolutely. Is, you know, it, it's, it's, you can't... I mean, you can, you can go train physically all you want and be in the best shape that you could possibly be in. But if you can't, and, you know, Ashley, you can attest to this now, mm -hmm. if you can't f get past the mental barrier when you think you've gone your limit, um, 
or, or a lot of people, it's way before their physical limit, but mm-hmm. it's that mental fight that people don't exercise or work on that I think is uh, the most detriment, detrimental yeah. to all training. And I think that, you know, Hannah was on the same, it was Hannah's hunt. Yeah. And uh, that was her first elk hunt too. Same sort of first time for her struggle and everything. But the difference between me and her is she's a runner. She knows that, you know, limit and know how, knows how to push past it. And I think you could see the difference in the mental toughness between me and her in that aspect because she knew, you know, that she could push past that wall Yeah. just from her experience as a runner. Yeah, she's definitely had some experience doing it. I mean, it's, you know, some of it, it takes experience to learn how to do it, but the middle game and pushing through and, you know, you like, you see people taking ice baths, you take, you see people, you know, going David Goggins on it and they do that to be able to push past a level of comfort and create a discipline on in themselves and a confidence that when you do get to where you were or where we've all been in, you know, some way, shape or form in life to push through it because you, you trust and you know that you can. And that's, I mean, it, again, it's not something um, everybody's made for. We're not all cut from the same cloth and, you know, you got to find your way of doing that. But it is definitely one of those things that you got to start playing around with this time of year because mm-hmm. um, we're all guilty of spending a little too time, too much time on the couch, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And then, oh, I'll be fine. I'll be fine. And then you're in a jam. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you've never been, for those of you who have never been and may be going this year because you drew in the the draws are all out now. Everybody kind of knows where they're going or they're starting to put their hunts together. And if you've never been, um, we would urge you through experience. Um, cause like she was saying, I have been in top physical condition for here, mm-hmm. not scared to go on anything. I mean, run marathon distance, uh, push hard in hour long CrossFit workouts, do Murph, um, you know, RX type stuff, and then get to the mountain. And when you can't breathe, it becomes a whole different story. So, and you know, if you're thinking about it or, or you're in that group of people that hasn't been or is about to go and you're wondering, what do I need to pack? And I've never been. And man, it'd be awesome to talk to somebody about how this goes down. The number one thing you can do is prepare yourself physically so that you can enjoy the hunt and spend time focused on the hunt instead of dealing with yourself once you're up there. Well, and too, so when the moment comes and it's time to kill that animal, you're sharp and you're not trying to catch your breath. You're not trying to, you know, your brain's fuzzy. You're not in a wreck. You know, so when the moment comes, you're you're still And sharp. And that moment will come, you know, especially if it's your first time. If you've done it at least once, then you kind of already know. But you will you will hit a mental wall. Doesn't matter what kind of shape you're in. Um, being and, and, being in those elements, um, you know, you'll you'll hit a wall regardless of your physical abilities. And it doesn't. You know, I'm not saying we're not saying that if you train mentally, then uh, 
you know, you'll have the physical ability. That's not what we're saying because it, it doesn't matter your physical ability. Um, you're going to hit a mental wall being in the mountains, being in a place that you're not used to being and training. And it's realizing in that moment, Hey, I've been in this type of moment before I've pushed myself to these moments and I know what it feels like. So now I also know I can keep going. Yeah. I mean, and even if you haven't, you know, even if you, if it's not your first time, every hunt's different. Oh yeah. Um, you know, we've had some hunts that we thought were going to be killers and the way it played out, it was just easy. We never really had that big of an issue. And then we've had some hunts that mm. we found ourselves, oh crap. Um, mm. <laughs> now it's time to buckle down and lean on somebody else. Cause they're, they're feeling strong and, you know, pull on them a little bit. Um, so Sometimes, even though you have the experience, you don't have the experience on that hunt. <laughs> and to mm -hmm. get mentally prepared um, is what will ultimately prepare you to, to deal with whatever you come across. Yeah. It's, uh, I don't know, I, that, that's kind of the fun of it, too, is, you know, every, every hunt is different. You know, it's impossible to train for every single situation. Um, but it just being in the best mental state uh, is, is definitely going to help you. Well, and I, you know, for me, growing up in sports, I enjoyed doing sports because I enjoyed putting in the work because there was an end goal in mind. Once I got out of sports, it was hard for me to go back to working out because it was like I have no goal in mind. Like I hate running. I love soccer and I can run three miles in a game because there's some sort of purpose to it. But Somebody's Hannah, chasing you. Yeah. But like, <laughs> yeah. but for Hannah to go on a six mile run in the morning with just, just cause that doesn't make sense to me. Whereas now that I've added hunting into my life, I enjoy the thought of working out and knowing that I'm doing it for a purpose. Yeah. What's your why? Yeah. What's my why? Yeah. I hate doing it without a why. It just doesn't make sense to me. So. Yeah, you you don't stand alone, and people that are like, "I'm nobody's chasing me. I'm not, I'm not running anywhere. Why would I?" Right. I tell you, get a get an old penny, and if you start thinking, oh, "I don't know if I really need to work out this hard today," or "I don't know if I need to go on my run today," start sucking on that penny. And that's the closest thing I know of that tastes like lung burning oh. blood in your <laughs> breath, mm -hmm. um, or yeah, I don't know. <laughs> it's a that I'm gonna suck on a penny. Uh. <laughs> I mean that. I think that's you know, as soon as we got done playing ball, it was like I I didn't want to run anymore. I don't. I never really enjoyed the the taste of blood in my lungs. Yeah. Um. For, for no reason, but you know, get on the side of a mountain and look at something up there and we decided to go to the top and it's like all of a sudden my brain doesn't even register that part of the suck yeah. it's like it you know put that that mental i don't know I, i'm sure there are some smarter people out there that you know trainers that have good sayings and terms for it but it, you know when you when you train mentally for something 
then when you're in the situation, it feels like your brain just shuts those bad parts off. It, it, it can allow it to just focus on what, what you want to do and the fun stuff. Um, the, the, the suck part of it is still there. Your lungs are still burning. Your, your legs are still burning. You're still, you know, might be sweating or your hip flexors feel like they're going to snap, but, um, it's like your brain is so used to feeling that during your training and pushing through it that when you're in the moment on the mountain or the hill, you can, uh, it's like your brain just goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember all that, but, but look at that. Well, yeah. I mean, it, I mean, if you can, the more you can normalize it, uh, the more your body knows how to deal with it for certain. And then, you know, like you said, you got to embrace the suck and, it, and just go somewhere else sometimes and just, you know, your brain focuses on one thing at a time. You pick that thing to focus on and whether it's the next five yards up or the next tree and you, and you just keep putting one foot in front of the other. I, I mean, it's like, I guess maybe you look at, uh, uh football players, like pro league or even, you know, by college, it's like, um, they get freaking smashed and bounce right back up and run back to the huddle and, you look at it and you think, oh, those guys just, they don't feel pain. They do. Because if you took them out of the, if, they, if you took them off the football field and off of that training for 12 months and then put them right back on it and had a guy just face plant them, <laughs> um, it's going to hurt, right? Because yeah. they, they're not, it's like they haven't been, like you said, it's not normalized. You know, they're not acclimated to that pain. Um, and it's just the same with us. It's like getting acclimated to the cold. You know, people look at us come February, we're wearing almost shorts and T-shirts out in the snowy days because we've been in the elements all fall, all winter, uh, and we're acclimated to the cold. So for us, 40 degrees is like... Bring it on, yeah. Yeah, and other people are bundled up. So to you're acclimating your mind along with your physical part to to want that. And it's, I mean, it, is it addictive? I feel like it is. Well, I, I think if you, anybody who's in the competition, it is anybody that, that thrives to have that, mm -hmm. you know, goal oriented lifestyle. Um, it's very much addictive. It's, it's why we seek out what the next thing is. Um, you know, it was baseball for me and then it became, you know, CrossFit and competing in competition, and then it became competing in shooting handguns, you know, always giving me some reason to try to have to be better for fear of not being good enough. Yeah. But, you know, aside from the Western hunt, um, there's other stuff. If you're not Western hunting, there's still a lot of stuff that you need to do to prepare um, to get ready for the season. That's a big part of what we do. You know, by September, that's over for us. And then we've got the rest of the time that we're, you know, we're moving on. We're chasing the rut, if you will, yeah. um, from south to north. Well, and it's so that's, you know, that I don't know if this is actually a term. If it's not, I just made up a term. Situational training. Situational training. It's a new term. Yeah. IOTV term. Probably never been used before, <laughs> especially military or anything, because. Why would it? But no, the, the same thing we've been talking about, the mental preparedness, so that in the moment, you know, certain things take over, certain things are blocked out. You've got that same mentality goes into whitetail hunting. You know, you're training maybe not uh, 
you know, hike a mountain, but to, you know, for shooting, because it probably shouldn't take you more than a couple of days to train to climb up in a tree. But the, you know, you're... <laughs> I don't know. We've I'm made... Shane. I... <laughs> His steps are a little bigger. We have made some sets. That's that true. took more than one time to figure out how to get in that tree. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but, it, you know, shooting your bow is the same thing. It's It's a physical... It's a mental, you know, uh, probably more so, not probably, definitely more so than with firearms just because, you know, everything is incrementally uh, more affected oh, yeah. you know, on, your, on your shot placement. So shooting over and over, being in that mental uh, place that in the moment you're, you, maybe you're freezing cold because you've been in the stand for two hours longer than you planned and it's too cold. And so your body's frigid or vice versa. You're burning up, sweating, and you really are just hating it. And then, but that's when the shooter steps out. So now you got to draw your bow when you're, you know, maybe more uncomfortable in this stand than you've ever been. But if you've taken the time over the summer to shoot every day, regardless, it could be 10 shots, regardless of, the weather, whether it's hot, whether it's freezing cold, whether it's raining, I mean, just go out and do it no matter what. Oh, I would say that's probably, I mean, once you get the, the index down, you know, you've got your basic set of skills in shooting a bow and, and you're set. You, I mean, you get it. I would argue that probably one of the best ways to train is to not go out and shoot you know, a hundred arrows a day. Oh yeah. Um, because you're more apt to do that. You know, you shoot a hundred arrows on Wednesday and you don't touch the bow again till Saturday or heck the next week, you'd probably be way better off to shoot five good arrows every single day and insist and get used to in the confidence that when it comes time, I've shot five good arrows every single day for the last three months. Well, <laughs> and here's my question to you guys. Would it, be more beneficial you know there's there's a stair stepper and then there's rucking right and they're kind of the same but they're a little bit different is it beneficial because I see a lot of people practicing shooting standing in the same place shooting at the same target do you need to you know get up in somewhat of a tree and practice shooting at a target do you need to sit down like you're in a blind like does it does it for archery shooters, because I don't, I don't know, I don't hunt like that, but oh yeah, you know, absolutely. I mean, are are you guys doing that as well? Like different positions, different heights, different. I don't think I would worry about changing what I was doing until I had the ultimate confidence that when I draw the bow, standing perfectly, um, just like we do at the line, you know, or you step up to shoot your target, and everything clicks, and that's the that's the reps. That's mm -hmm. the, you know, training yourself to get to that point where I'm not thinking about a million different things. I'm focused on the target. I know I'm not going to punch the trigger. I know I, it, subconsciously I've created the skill. I have the subconscious knowledge to shoot this bow. Then you start to put yourself in awkward positions, um, leaning down in the stand, shooting straight down, sitting. Um, you know, who knows when are you going on a spot and stock? Because you might not plan to, but when you climb up the tree and he beds down 80 yards from you, mm -hmm. 
and you're like, man, the wind's perfect. There's cover between me and him. And the next thing you know, you're shooting from um, a prone position. (laughs) Have you ever practiced that? Yeah. And, you know, once your skills are set and then you go to playing around with that angle or I, you know, I, he run around the tree a little further than I thought. And now I'm out on a lean. I'm at the end of my lanyard and there's a limb in the way. So I got to slightly crouch down. Mm-hmm. You ever made that shot before? Right. Because even with rifle hunting, you know, you can you can sit at a bench all day long, but that's not what your hunting situation is going to be like. Exactly. Yeah. So you've got to practice on the. But well, I do. There, I, and uh, maybe we sort of jumped a little bit ahead, but there, you know, in in training, there's so many different, um, not just styles, but beginners to advanced and, and, and everywhere in between. So, you know, we were sort of talking about that. Um, what was that phrase I made up? Situational training? Yeah, some people may call it tactics. Yes. Um, <laughs> well, that's just because they're uneducated. Uh, yeah, this So situational training would be more, like you say, you know, training for a specific mm. situation. Um, but then you've got, you know, just basic motor skills training so that, um, you know, your muscle memory has evolved to the point where you're not thinking about certain things. And I think that's what most people do. Just the basic motor skill training. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, you get to where, and you, yeah, you have to have that as a baseline. Absolutely. So that when you get in an awkward, I mean, if, if it's not second nature to your grip on your bow or your gun um, and, you know, your your trigger finger and squeeze on either, if that process isn't second nature in an ideal setting, you need bench, to make it that way, then it's never going to be, uh, mm-hmm. it's never going to work right in an uncomfortable or unplanned situation. Oh, for sure. I just, I wonder how many people stop at the basics. Yeah. Well, yeah. Probably most. And then we and all that's do. Okay, I don't. Well, it is. That's better than nothing. But, it, for sure. I, you know, the, uh, it's, you know, the more prepared you can be, the better. You, yeah. You're but never going to know every but it, situation. But it's human nature. You'd do oh, it. Yeah. I'd do it. You'd do it. If we're on a, <laughs> and this may be a poor analogy if you've never played golf, but there'll be a lot of people that understand what I'm about to say. Um, if you can't drive the ball straight down the fairway, but yet you think you can hook it over those trees across <laughs> that water because it's a little bit shorter. I think I'll just go for it. And that's what we're all guilty of. Yeah. I mean, I haven't practiced to the point where I can shoot my bow instinctively. It just happens. But he's standing at 80. Maybe I can hit him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're right. And, it, you know, if, if, you, if I told, if we had a 100, guy, 100 guys, girls, hunters, uh, sitting here and we said, okay, the, the only thing you're going to really get to do this year hunting wise is set in this tree stand on this tree edge and, and you're going to hunt this, you know, 40 yard gap in front of you. That That's, that's going to be the extent of your hunting this fall. Um, I would, you know, venture to guess that 98 out of those hundred um, are only going to be prepared or are only going to start or prepare for that tree stand and that 40-yard gap for that fall. 
most of them are not going to go, you know what? Um, I'm going to go ahead and also train sitting down or shooting from my knees or, you know, crawling up and getting up on my knees and shooting or any other situation because if they feel like that's all they're going to be doing this fall, then that's all they're going to train for. But out of those 98 that that's all they train for, like you said, that shooter buck, you know, it might be a state record that is 10 yards out of your comfort zone. Well, you could, if the wind was right, get down and put a slow stalk on him and have to shoot from your knees and, and kill him. But how many of, you know, those 98% that never train for that, it's only those other 2% that went ahead and put that extra effort in just in case. And I think that's where we've all sold ourselves short on that. Um, but we all need to get better. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, a lot of the stuff that, especially early in my hunting career, when I first got into archery, if I did something that was out of, you know, standing there square and perfect. And, you know, it was that once you started to get it down, you got a little bit bored, you know, it was like, well, I've, I've done this a million times. And then you, and then you kind of start to play around with, well, you know, I'm going to shoot it from this angle or I'm going to, you know, stand on one leg or lean around a tree or, you know, and uh, you learn real quick how that gets different. <laughs> Lost a lot of arrows. Well, and it's, you know, it's, it can be said for 100% certainty. It's a lot easier to stay in shape than it is to get in shape or get back in shape. Yeah, you know, we've been airing bow fishing shows, a couple of episodes, and Oh, yeah. That's one of the things we do. Um, you know, it's it's something that we get to do because you know we're we're making these episodes and and we're involved in a lot of different things. But boy, it keeps you sharp. It keeps you tuned. Uh, think of how many times we draw the bow in the night. Um, I mean, you probably get. <laughs> I, I know I miss a hundred fish <laughs> per <laughs> trip. So, I yeah. mean. The muscles that I'm using on a regular basis, and then when you go to pull the bow, you know, my son, he's uh, 16. He's six, somewhere between six foot and six one, outweighs me probably now by, you know, 10 pounds, and he still can't pull my bow back. We're, we're, we're still under the assumption he's yours? Yep. She's got some explaining to do, but... Because okay. um, if you're just listening <laughs> and you haven't watched or are not familiar with Shane, he's a... Uh, Short He's a king. solid five, eight. Yeah, be careful. <laughs> yeah, I. Why I have a over six foot son um, with a flowing mane, uh, I'll never know because I have neither height nor hair. <laughs> <laughs> but he still can't pull my bow back, and you know, probably every bit as as strong as I am, but hasn't used those muscles, hasn't developed that yet. Um, there'll be a day I can't pull his bow, but you know, um, you know, Cam Haynes' son has struggled for the dude can do a million pull-ups, and for the longest time he couldn't pull his dad's bow back because Cam hunts with a ninety-pound bow at times, and uh, so you know, just to develop and work throughout the summer, if you didn't do anything but just get out there and and do things that maintain what you carry through the season. Um, don't ultimately let it die. We all want to put it down for a little bit, have a break. Um, I think it's, it's what keeps us fresh. I think it's healthy to do. Um, and then, you know, 
about this time of year, the draws come out or, or you go and put out that first camera and you start to get the itch. And that's when it's time to pick it back up and uh, start to get into it um, and just keep it maintained. It is so much easier, like you said. I, how quick we, we fall out of shape. Because if it, if it took half the time to fall out of shape as it does to get into shape, it sure doesn't seem like it takes. It seems like it takes a day or two and it's gone. Oh, yeah. It's, oh, I don't even like talking about how fast I've got a, a metabolism, whatever. Just my body style is everybody wants what they don't have. Like, ah, oh, you're just skinny. And I'm like, oh, yeah, well, it, you're stronger because, you know, skinny sucks when it's trying to gain muscle. But it's so frustrating how fast, you know, it might take me three months to put on five or six pounds of muscle. Um, I say three months, maybe four or five months, but in three weeks, I can lose every bit of that. And that in was three a- weeks. I bet in a week, if I didn't, you know, if I wasn't keeping up a, a good protein in my diet and doing nothing physical, I'll bet in a week uh, I could lose that six pounds of muscle. It may not translate into six pounds lighter on a scale, um, but as it just turns to mush, yeah, it's so frustrating. Yeah, and that was before you were 48. Right. <laughs> but, you, you know, this this time of year, talking about just preparing and stuff and brought up trail cameras, that, I think um, that's got to be one of the most exciting parts of June, July, August. You know, everybody's getting their trail cameras out, getting them set up, getting feeders running if you haven't had them running, um, just, you know, getting your inventory of – it's almost like – Sort of like making your Christmas list when you were a kid. It may be, it may be my favorite part of the of the year. Um, I love the work, um, and I think it's because of the the anticipation it creates. And you know, scrolling through my phone app to see what bucks showed up, um, seeing the work pay off. Um, you know, putting out the feeders, sweating weed eating stuff that you can't get to with a tractor or a truck and you carried a weed eater or a machete. Uh, you know, I have, um, taken a handsaw and, and drilled a hole through the woods for a half mile before. Mm-hmm. Um, I love it. I love the sweat. I love at the end of the day when your socks are wet. Yeah. I don't know why, but, um, I absolutely love the preparation and, you know, some people would call it farming for whitetails, if you will, because, you know, love whitetail hunting. But it doesn't matter if it's whitetail hunting or, you know, waterfowl hunting or whatever it is, plant and millet. Um, just to get out and do the work and the anticipation of mm-hmm. what's going to happen. Yeah. And I think that a lot of this stuff that we're talking about is a big part of why, you know, media nowadays or this generation has a misunderstanding of hunters. Because a lot of people don't see the work that's put into it before the kill. Like, yeah. You know, all, the physical aspect, the the food plotting, the <laughs> preparation, I, I, you know, all the, all the hours and the days that go before you kill an animal. <laughs> and there... No one knows that. Uh, people know that, but not a whole lot of people know that, that, especially the ones that are dogging on us and the hate comments and everything like that, you know. And then it's just not to go down a rabbit hole, but 
it's funny how so many of those people, you know, and I've got some, you know, old friends and extended family members who still, you know, are like, why are you going to kill that? And, you know, they, the same people who have no problem um, putting in the effort to drive to the grocery store to get a prepackaged pound of hamburger meat have an issue with us going through this process and the, you know, the effort that we put into bettering the, the herd mm -hmm. of whatever animals we're hunting, we take out a select few um, and then turn those into meals. And yet some of these people have a problem with it, I guess, because it's not, Repackaged it, right? Kroger. I, I don't. You know, again, <laughs> I don't want to go down a rabbit hole for I don't those either, folks. But, but I well, in I my opinion, what we're talking about has a whole lot more respect for the animal than driving to the grocery store and picking it up in a package. And at the end of the day, but that's just my opinion. Most of them just don't understand what we put into it and the appreciation and what we will put into making these animals live beautiful lives i mean i've you know i'm on my second ton of protein feed um i'm i've got multiple feeders out on my lease and i'm mowing trails and i'm you know putting out mineral i, I want to make sure that does are healthy so when mm -hmm. they throw fawns that i'm not even going to even consider shooting for four, five, six years. Um, I want them to be healthy. You know, we're the ultimate conservationists mm -hmm. and we'll pour it to them. And I'm not, you know, I don't feel guilty for that in any way, shape or form because mm. um, there's not an animal on earth I don't appreciate. And, you know, we understand when you take the life of an animal, what it means and what it means to us. I like and I like the comments of how could you shoot such a beautiful creature? Well, for one, they're all for the most part pretty dang beautiful and for two, um I don't know of a place I can go shoot wild cows cuz I like beef yeah. and I eat beef but um That's a good point. If 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 there was a place out there that had wild cattle running around, I I promise you I'd go hunt them. I actually also. think there is somewhere you can do that. I can't remember where it is, but I think they have I don't know wild if you're cows. joking with me or No, I'm not. <laughs> I'm not. I was literally just talking about it with Brian Potter the other day, my buddy that's on you know on the lease with me, and he was like, Would you hunt cows? Because I think there's somewhere you can go hunt wild cows. <laughs> I would. It's in a whole other country, but um I'd hunt grasshoppers if they opened a season on it. I, it's <laughs> yeah. just the love we have for chasing them, it is fair chase. That's what we do. And you know, to each their own. If you're hunting high fence, um, isn't it good isn't, on you? It is kind of funny though, because you know, as as we're saying this and thinking it through, and the the whole how can you shoot such a beautiful creature? I don't know that I've ever. I don't know that even as a show that we've ever had a comment um, when we post a picture when we've shot a um, a wild hog. And you know, right. making dinner out of that, and, and everything we make at them. I don't think anybody's ever said, "Oh, how can you shoot such a beautiful creature?" Like, I, 
clearly they're not as beautiful as a, like an Access or a Ram or, or even a, a Whitetail, but it's like they, you know, they have their own standards of what's acceptable to hunt based on mm-hmm. beauty. Well, you even look at the difference between fishing and hunting. Yeah. Right, you know. I mean, uh, nobody's nobody's giving you crap about keeping whole, perch, but there's a whole lot You pull less. out a beautiful rainbow or king salmon and you're like, "Oh, I can't believe you're going to, you know, take that thing out of its homeland and but they don't say anything if I just rip out a you know, a brim <laughs> or I doubt I'm going to get any calls about the episode where, you know, coming up where we've uh, you know, cooking gar. People be like, "Oh, yeah." It's hard to feel sorry for them. Right? <laughs> yeah. But but yeah. elk, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I mean, beauty's in the eye of the beer holder. <laughs> <laughs> True. So you know, I mean, shot a hog in California, you know, years ago hunting with Yamaha, and uh, he's mounted on my wall. He was beautiful um, and tasty, but you know, we just we appreciate the animals. I don't think most people, like you were saying, they don't understand the work that we put in. They don't understand the appreciation that we have for God's creation. And at the end of the day, we don't have to be apologetic for it because um, nope. the good book tells us uh, we have dominion over all of them, and he put them here for food. Yep. Uh, it's a little late in the game, but I would, for all the, the younger hunters out there, I would say... I think they should start keeping track now of every dime they spend on a hunting license or any product that money goes back into wildlife conservation. Mm. And over the years, I would like to know how much I've spent over the years in any, like I said, license or products that go a portion back into wildlife conservation so that when someone says, you know, you're just whatever, you don't love God's creation because you're just killing them. And well, and I can say, okay, well, here's the um, tens of thousands of dollars that I've spent that have gone to wildlife preservation and conservation and bettering. And here's the number of hours we've spent planting food plots for thousands and thousands of animals to feed on and be healthier on that we've only watched. Yeah. Because, you know, we plant a food plot that feeds, let's say, a you know, uh, what? hundred deer sometimes. Okay. I mean, and, I, and, I, and that's in a year. Yeah. Right? And you might kill one or two, so. Or none. <laughs> right? So that, you know, the, the percentage that we're mm-hmm. working towards compared to the percentage that we take off um, for food is yeah, so I different. But I think it would be a great um, argument uh, st- stat, whatever, when someone starts giving these you know, as hunters giving us crap for, you know, not loving wildlife, or how can you do that to say, oh, hold on, let me flip this piece of paper out. And so my running tab for giving back to wildlife conservation and preservation is uh, this many thousands of dollars, this many thousands of hours, and um, these are all the types of animals that I've helped, you know, feed and grow mm-hmm. and never even raised a gun at or bow at. Um, let me see your list. Yeah, I don't, I don't yeah. want to know my number, and I don't want my wife knowing that number. Well, <laughs> well and correct me if I'm wrong, but 100% of that, you know, those funds go right back into, like, that. that's how the 
Well, it depends the on the life department. Is depends like, on the state. Depends okay. on uh, the programs that they're involved in and what you're purchasing. But um, a lot of them, most of your money is going back into wildlife conservation in the state that you're using it. Okay. And you know, and then you know, aside from buying licenses, like you're saying, you know, we're creating habitat a lot of times. You know, feed deer. Um, we're feeding turkeys. We're feeding dove. Um, we're feeding quail. Coons. Coons. <laughs> I, I, if I had a I just want the money back. I fed coons. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. you know, um, we put it back into it. Um, we should be proud of what we're doing ultimately. And, uh, you know, if you really looked at it, maybe uh, the most expensive meat you'll ever eat is uh, some of the deer we've shot over the years because the price per pound is way up there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So kind of going back to you know, talking to the young hunter and especially this kind of question for me as a beginner hunter, but, you know, if I, if I don't have the equipment to be, or, you know, the area to be able to build and plant this huge food, like food plot, what can I do or what can they do to, I I know me and Shane have talked about this a little bit, but what are some small things that they can do that can almost kind of mimic a mini food plot where they could see success there in Um, the fall? If you own a rake, um, you're hunting public ground, um, you know, like here in the state of Oklahoma, you can't bait on public ground mm-hmm. and obviously you can't go plant on public ground, but you can go, um, learn where your oak trees are, learn where your, um, acorns are going to fall. Um, really? Oh yeah. Okay. Um, you know, whether it's a red oak or a white oak, they're going to fall at different times of the season and then, uh, go find that spot, go in there and rake back some of the leaves, break, rake back the under forage. One, you're going to let uh, new growth start to come up. Um, it's like a food plot in a bottle, if you will. Anytime you can expose the earth and let new growth come in. But even in, when it doesn't come to new growth, rake it back and make it easier for them to get to the acorns. They'll pile to them. Hmm. What, I guess, so go back and what, what is, what are you asking exactly? I like, I'm just, so you know, just kind of for the listeners and really just for me myself, if I didn't have access to this team and I, I mean, for my entire life, I've wanted to get into hunting, you know, if I didn't have you guys to kind of teach me and mentor me and I could go to our leases and I could watch, you know, food plot, if I was on my own, what would you tell me? Like if you just met me and I was like, I've heard about food plots, don't really know. I I don't have the resources or the place but I, I want to put in this work. Maybe I have a small release or my buddy's letting me use this piece of property. I don't have a tractor. W- what can I do? I, I've got a lawnmower. Is there something I can do with that? Like, That's a tough. And, and, oh. <clears throat> if it's too tough, I was just It's not. It's, it's a little bit open-ended because it's, you know, there are so many things that um options oh yeah you know it's like uh it's you know i don't know what to sort of parallel it to um uh, but it you know just if we're just narrowing it down to food plots or or a food source and, and you have your own piece of property if you have you know if you're only hunting public property you know, there, there are so many different laws for all the different states and the regulations, things you can and can't do. I would imagine there's some, you know, 
places out there that you are on public ground, you may not be able to take a rake out there. Um, yeah, it's possible. You know, surely you're not going to be able to burn where you want. You're not going to be able to, you know, I, I don't know. I, I don't know all the different laws and mm. and well, I guess things that you can and can't do. But if if you have a piece that, yeah, just you know, is, is your buddies or you guys have permission to hunt, um, say you go talk to a landowner. You're like, hey, you know, would, would you mind if we hunted on your property? We want to kill some does or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there are, yeah, there are some really uh, simple things you can do, you know, just like everything else. It can be really simple or really, really expensive and technical and drawn out. But, um, yeah, you, you said a lawnmower. As simple as keeping it mowed, um, you know, one of the things, it's been a few years now that that we talked about, um, we had heard about it, I think it was, we were doing some with food plots, about that every plant in its infancy, mm-hmm. um, whether it's any type of weed, any grass, any clover, anything growing, um, and I'm not a biologist, botanist, what is that? I'm not a plant guy. Wish Dusty was here, but from the way we understood it was coming from a, uh, was he a botanist? Yeah, well, I believe the original study, I can't remember if it was University of Georgia or Mississippi State, uh, one of the two, I believe, um, to look that up, that but actually it, went in and tested all these different weeds um, in their infancy. Uh, and compared them to other high-protein food sources such as alfalfa. And I think it was milkweed actually had just as high a protein in its infancy and new growth stage than alfalfa does. <laughs> so simply mowing and creating new growth, um, you're creating something that can be as healthy as one of the nicest food plots out there. And so by... Infancy or growth state, what we're talking about is, um, you know, not just a seedling starting to grow, but um, so when we're, you know, we're bow fishing mm-hmm. and, we're, and we're driving around the lakes or, you know, you're out in the, the country a lot or some of these uh, neighborhoods in the parks around the lakes, where do you see, say you're driving down the highway at night, where do you see the deer feeding? On the side of the road. In the, in, short the, in the short grass. In the short grass, yeah. When, yeah. We're, when we're bow fishing and we're around the lake, where do you see most of the deer standing around feeding? Short grass. In people's lawns? Yes. So what we're talking about in, a, in an infancy or the growth stage is um, before it goes to seed. So the reason you see all those deer always is like, why are they always feeding right next to the freaking highway? Mm-hmm. Well, it's because it's, it's kept mowed. And they're in people's lawns eating on their fescue or their um, whatever they've got planted because it's being constantly mowed and before it gets seeded out when it's still in that growing stage or what we were calling its infancy um, it's more palatable and higher in protein mm-hmm. right than mm-hmm. than once it goes to seed um, so that's yeah I mean kind of a roundabout so, answer to your question if you okay. took a lawnmower out and you picked a, a an area around your tree stand or your blind and kept it mowed, mm-hmm. you know, you're going to have people saying, oh, you're going to be out there screwing up the deer, taking a lawnmower out in the woods. Okay. So let's be a little bit 
you know, saying here and where you're taking that lawnmower out to. However, um, as an example, we've taken weed eaters out and created a 30 yard circle around a tree and every week or two gone out, you know, midday and kept it weed eated down. We couldn't run a lawnmower. But we find that those deer, especially the, the does that are the herded up deer, are coming in and feeding in that short grass. So, yeah, it could be as simple as taking a lawnmower out and cutting a, a lane or area around your tree or a weed eater or, you know, getting um, uh, some no plow. White Tail Institute has their no plow that's a, a coated seed that if you just Ideally, if you take a rake and just rough the ground and get some seed to soil contact, it's going to grow something for those deer uh, that, that they're going to want to eat. Or if you spill it in the back of your truck, it'll grow. It will. <laughs> it doesn't take much. Uh, you know, and then you can. Or you Research can, equals results. I did That's it. That's right. I did it. I grew Whitetail Institute Imperial No Plow right the bed ladder of my <laughs> did truck. Did you really? Yeah. Yeah, I did. What is in the bed of your truck? There was just some dirt spilled in there. My wife, she had some potting soil, and it was just a remnant. It's not like there was enough for it to actually do uh, anything. And it took there was root. A, I had a cut in the bed liner where I drug something across there and ultimately split it. And it took root, grew right through that bed liner. Do you have any deer in your the bed of your truck? No, no, I sat over it a couple of times. I never saw anything. Uh, but. Darn it. <laughs> but no, it literally grew in the back of my truck. So if it makes soil contact, it's going to grow. Okay. And it's, uh, I mean, probably, arguably, one of the better products they make as far as palatability. It, the deer love it. Um, some of the things they actually you know, have to get used to or, you know, start to see as a food source, especially if it's new to their area when you plant it. But it's got such an array of stuff in it. You can go throw that out of your hand, cast it on the ground if you've mowed, um, if you were able to rake a little bit and expose the soil. Um, it grows like crazy. And deer love it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, Whitetail Institute is good. They got a lot of products for, obviously, food plots and growing. Um, and if, you know, I don't, I don't know if that's specifically what you're asking about or no, if it's it is, just yeah. an attractant to get deer closer as a new hunter, maybe not comfortable to shooting out past 20 yards. Um, you know, they've got granules and powders, whether it's, you know, Whitetail Institute or there's, you know, the tried and true golden death pellets. I mean, corn is king. Um, People will, there will be people out there that, you know, want to throw hate at corn and for all different reasons and, ah, oh, you're, you know, baiting them in. I'm not saying that we're hunting over a pile of corn, um, but also I would argue, what's the difference between hunting over a pile of corn? You're going to give me crap about hunting over a pile of corn, um, but you're going to love the fact that I hunted over the corner of a food plot that we planted that is, you know, same type of grain is just still on a stalk. Yeah, the edge um, of a corn field. Right. So, <laughs> you know, if, if we're being, and we always try to be completely transparent, um, 
you know, at the risk of getting some hate mail, um, we don't do it much anymore. You know, early on, I think we all evolve. But, yeah, we hunted over corn piles a lot um, in our early hunting But, you know, careers. if it's legal in your state and— Oh, sure. And you want to go um, hunt within the legal means, get after Absolutely. it. Why wouldn't you? I mean, you know, kids—my kids growing up, you know, we wanted to show them the aspects of hunting but also not let them get burnt out by never seeing deer or ever getting a shot. There's that fine line of, you know— teaching them hunting. Um, but you know, we dump out a pile of corn at, at 80 yards, uh, and set them up during use season. And, and if a, a, you know, mature buck or a doe came in something they want to shoot, you know, it's, it's a great way to see animals. Um, it's a good way to hunt, especially if you're wanting to get maybe some a particular number of does out or whatever. Mm. A lot of what we do with corn now is, um, like let's take our Kansas lease, for instance, we've got, you know, I don't know how many acres of alfalfa and, and some wheat. And I'm not sure what we planted back in the back. Um, I think maybe it was no plow, but at any rate, there's so much ag in, in Kansas that really a corn feeder doesn't do you much good. They're going to stop by it and, and grab a bite. So what we like to do is, is we'll put them centrally located couple of big thousand pound 1200 pound i think mm -hmm. that dylan feeder is thousand 1100 1100 mm -hmm. um so it's 1100 pounds which allows us the ability to go set up in july or june put 1100 pounds of corn in this feeder put a you know a multi cell camera up i think we've got a couple multi mobiles out there now yep. um and we don't have to go back in there to keep track of the inventory, what that corn's going to do, they're going to spend a majority of their time eating out in all the ag fields because they've got wheat and they've got alfalfa and they've got milo and, you know, our, our various food plots. But Kansas is one big giant food plot <laughs> with some timber in it. So what the corn's allowing us to do is to get a good inventory, especially right now. Um, Draw them to a camera. Yeah, it, it puts them in front of a camera. We've got, I don't know how many cameras out along the edges of our fields, but they only see so far. Uh, so, the, you know, that gets them in front of the camera, get a good inventory. Um, and then you start spreading your cameras out sort of in a spider web around that feeder and see yeah, so where was, they're coming from. That was going to kind of be my next question. I'm... I'm this podcast is probably more for me than most of the people listening, but like, w obviously you put a camera in front of your feeder. H how do you know where else to put a camera? Like, is there, is there an, a rhyme or reason? Is yeah. there any other methods? I don't know. That's almost a podcast in itself, Okay, uh, but it's in a nutshell, just like everything else. There's, there's people who have, they have opinions on how they do it that worked for them. There are people that have come up with really good, um, what am I looking for? Um, they come up with plans or strategies, strategies to, to use cameras. Um, I, I, there's a good friend of ours that lives up in Kansas. Uh, I don't know if you want me using his full name. We'll 
Josh, um, and he's he's killed a handful of bucks over you know two hundred inches over the years. Just a phenomenal ability to find these big deer and um, learned a lot talking to him. And what he does is he'll go, you know, put out a small pile of corn or a, a mineral rock or some small amount of attractant that can be either either eaten really quickly if it's not producing uh, what he's looking for so it won't mm-hmm. be there for a long period of time or like a mineral rock or something that he can move and he'll put up a camera he'll give it I don't remember what he said a, a number of days and if a shooter buck shows up that he's looking for um, he starts the process of think about it like you have a, a dot in the middle um and then you've got an outside ring around that that's 20 yards out. And then you go 20, 30 yards more and a, a lot wider ring. And so he just creates a bigger circle around that one camera to try to find out where that deer is coming and going from. And then once he finds a whatever camera that the deer is crossing in front of to get to the corn, then he starts there and he spreads cameras out on the you know around that one to find out where he's coming from to get to that one and then so on and so on until he finds out where that deer's bedding and so at that point he'll keep feeding that spot or let it run out and just keep an eye on because he knows where that deer's bedding he knows that he's been coming in that direction to that food so he's probably already had a food source because in early season right now um you know and correct me if i'm wrong because i'm never 100% right all the time. Right now, those deer are on a pattern. And if I go dump out a pile of corn and it's 50 yards off of his normal travel pattern right now, the chances of him coming to it are pretty slim, right? Um, It is amazing how little they travel. Um, You know, on, on the lease currently, we have seven or eight different feeders running that are maybe a quarter mile from each other, and we will not have the same bucks on different cameras. Um, they're just food to bed. They're usually close to water, and they're they're moving. Like my deer right now, mainly the peak of mine, um, they're not going out of 100 yards like you were talking about, yeah. out of their realm, and it's a three-hour window. I'm getting them for... Two in the morning to five in the morning, and then nothing else. So if you pinpoint them, I guess, you know, as, as we're talking in this summer season, as you're putting out and you're doing the radius and everything, and you figure out where they're coming from and when they're going in their peak time, does that change when it gets closer to fall? Do they that follow? changes? That changes the minute they go hard-horned, definitely. Right. Um, but then also, it depends on the food source that you're in. And like he said, there's, I mean, this, you could really rabbit hole out in this conversation. <laughs> but, you know, it depends on so many variables. But what they're doing right now in July and August, you cannot count on come October. Then what's the point? Inventory. Okay. He- herd of your health. Okay. Uh, healthier herd, said that backwards. Um, really starting to see. What do I have? Mm. What's out there? Um, what it, what can I expect? You know, because, um, you know, a lot of guys, I want to shoot a 200-inch deer. 
I think all of us do. Um, can you shoot a 200-inch deer where there isn't one? No. So it's like you, you got to have a, a, a reasonable expectation of what you've got available. Um, yeah. You really get a chance to look at a deer's structure. Now's the best time to learn a deer's age. Um, really learn when he comes in. Now I'm not having to say, oh, I think, oh, how old is he? How big is he? <laughs> I already know. Mm. I know this deer. I got a hundred pictures of him. Okay, that makes I've already sense. judged his body. I've already, I know everything about him. I know if he's a shooter the minute I see him. Well, there's, so when you said, what's the point? Um, what, I don't know what you, exactly what you meant by what's the point of. I guess in the sense of. Targeting uh, that deer? Well, yeah, I guess in the sense of what's the point, because I get the inventory part. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And what you were talking about with the radius and going out and figuring out where he's, I don't know if you're talking about if that's during summer or if that's during fall. No, it'd, no. it'd be during summer right now. So they have a summer pattern. Um, yeah, so my question was. And so they're going the from bed to water to food to water to bed. But keep mm -hmm. in mind, in Kansas, he's going to be hunting them in their summer pattern because Kansas season opens early enough to be able to do that. That Kansas muzzleloader season, yeah. they put giants on the ground, and they're super predictable. So okay. so right now you're, you know, and, and you know, it, it can depend on the age of the deer. The older they are, these, these older bucks are going to have a lot less uh, variance in their travel pattern. They're going to be pretty strict on where they're going to and back to bed. Um, if they can get up and walk 10 feet and get something to drink and get the food they want and lay back down, they may never move more than that 10 feet. That's rare, but, mm -hmm. um, so they're, you know, they've, they've got a, a true pattern throughout the summer. And so what you're trying to do is find, um, you know, talking to Josh, I, I know there were times where he would take that food and that camera and move it 20 yards and all of a sudden that shooter shows up. I mean, he was just 20 yards off. Mm. Um, that that draw to the corn, that smell, isn't enough for some of those big mature bucks to, to veer off 20 yards um, when you, they have everything they need. You heard me today talking about one of the yeah. feeder sites I've got. I put it up 10 days ago, and I still don't have a deer picture on it. And it, it's, it's a whole lot better than the other. And it's... It, I'm really wanting it to be good because it's one of my favorite spots on the ranch. Mm -hmm. um, but for 10 days now, there's nothing moving far enough. I've got two different feeders sitting in there, um, mowed the whole thing down, went in and cast no plow just to get something up and going. <laughs> and I'm checking, I mean, I look past all my other deer, you know, like I was showing you those other ones. Um, cause I want to see something show up on there, but they just don't move that far right now. And I guess that's a good point to kind of preface everything we've talked about that sometimes it doesn't work. <laughs> oh, yeah. Like, they're I mean, animals. We, they're wild well, animals. We, we like to rationalize things as humans based on, like, that looks like a perfect place mm. to, for a giant to show up. Well, is that a perfect place for you? As a human, like if I was a deer, that's where I'd go <laughs> spend my... I do that you know. sometimes when I'm fishing. 
Sure. Oh, yeah. You probably it's, do like this. This Laura oh, looks. This place is I'd, killer. Yeah. Look at it. It is sexy. Yeah. Like there, the, there's no way there's not. If a bass I was a there. fish, I'd be under that rock. These fish are stupid. Well, right now I've been perfectly wrong. It, yeah. It's my favorite spot to my eye. Yeah. And it's not just my eye. I mean, I put it in a spot where ultimately I think. It's in a spot where I feel like during the rut, it's going to kill because it's where two pinch points come together. And it's going to be good, but I want it to be good right now. And they're, you know, like he was saying, I could be 20 yards off. So the the point is, when you were asking what's the point, is, you know, you're not putting that corn there right then or, or you know, I, I – I'm fairly certain um, he's never killed a buck, one of those 200-inch-plus, off of that spot where he first put the corn or the rock to get a picture of him. What that allowed him to do was just locate a shooter if it was in there by having it close enough to his uh, you know, mm-hmm. travel zone that he, he got a picture of him. And then, you know, it, it like I said, this is a whole different podcast that we should have him in here as a guest. But anyway... Um, so he, he works his way in with the cameras and finds out where this deer is going back, where his bedding is, where his home range is, uh, his, his bedding area. So from there, um, there would be a bit of a, a rush, I guess, uh, time sensitive to kill him while he's still in that summer pattern because that's only going to last until, you know, he, he loses his velvet um, or – you know, when the rut hits, once they lose their velvet, um, they're going to be less tall of other deer. They're going to just change. They're going to start moving a little more and more. There's a lot of that open for discussion. How much that old buck is going to increase his travel area, except for during the rut. But once you've got it down to his bedding area, you can then start hunting the outskirts, you know, where the food sources are that he might be going to. And so you start setting up around that bedding area. Or if he is coming to that, you know, that 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 food you set out, the, the transition area, however far it is between his bedding and that point, you try to catch him in there. Um, that, I guess, would be the point of that. Um, and if you can duplicate that process like he's been able to do several times and be extremely successful at it. Um, you know, you just take that on a different scale and, and change it a little bit for where you are and the number of deer you have. If you've got a buck showing up, um, K and K, an outfitter in Kansas, um, some of the most incredible people in their scouting techniques, um, clearly pay off by the deer the caliber of deer that they shoot every year their clients shoot um when when we hunted with them in the past they do all their scouting from a a mile away or half a mile away all their scouting is done through spotting scopes and binoculars watching these fields seeing where these bucks enter and exit the field because during that summer pattern there's not going to be a huge difference daily where that big buck enters that, whether it's a cornfield or a bean field or a, you know, field of dreams. He's, he's going to come in and leave 
in a, a pretty close to the exact same spot every day during that summer pattern. Um, and then they'll go in what, I know it's been a few years, but he said they, they go in the woods twice a year uh, to hang or adjust stands and trim shooting lanes. And that's in the summer. And then I guess the only other time they'd go in is to hunt or, mm-hmm. or if they needed to adjust something. They hmm. When they take hunters in, they go straight to the stand and straight out. Everything that they want to know about that buck um, is known before they start hunting. So when they go into the woods, it's a with a purpose of just getting in the stand and then getting out of the stand and back out as quick as possible because they know uh, that stand's going to be in between where they're coming to that food source and where their bedding is. And so, uh, you know, that is sort of the same process that Josh was using to find those big deer, but in a way that it's set up over these huge giant ag fields. Um, Can we do that here in Oklahoma? Not really because we don't have a bunch of big ag fields unless we, you know, our food plots, we try to do that on, but you know, uh, there are places like up, you know, on the Drummond ranch, it's, it's cattle country. You look at thousands and thousands of acres and it's virtually the exact same. You're look, you feel like you're looking at the exact same piece of property over and over and over again. And like, what, how are these deer getting this big and where are they going? <laughs> like they, it looks like they could, literally bed anywhere and then get up and drink anywhere uh, you got kettle ponds or creeks you know obviously there are some drier places but then the for the food is the same on almost all of it so it's like how do you you know narrow that down to where's good and it's you know using the cameras putting those uh, feeders out or corn piles and locating a good buck but um, that's all part of the prep you know, that we originally started this thing off on is it's that time of year. It's that it's time to prep and it's time to start to figure those things out. Some of it's just by trial and error. Mm -hmm. I mean, we've been as like with this feeder spot that I've got, I've been as unsuccessful as I've been (laughs) successful. And it, and it, it, you know, you don't know what you don't know. Like we talked about earlier and you just got to get out there and try some stuff. It's part of the work. It's part of what makes it fun because you get to figure it out. And yeah. when so, it finally does pay off. And I guess, you know, it's it's somewhat of a guarantee. But I would imagine, I've never, for the listeners, been whitetail hunting. Um, but I would imagine when that rut hits, it's just, it like, it you, you could be going after a target yeah. buck, and then all of a sudden this buck you've never seen before pops out right? and at the same time um you can be wasting your time going after if a target buck because yeah. he might be in another county if yeah. there's one thing that is a guarantee in hunting is that nothing is a guarantee hmm. you it you'll be baffled that you know it could be the day that is the perfect conditions and for whatever reason it's off or you you know we've got a couple of spectacular leases and for whatever reason everything seems good and then the deer just leave for a a year a fall and to us as humans nothing changed and it's like what what but you know it's it's you know going back to to, to preparation is it's preparation um 
constantly learning, you know, refining what you think you know, because um, what we think we know well, that's probably also what, changes. I think you said it best there. What you think you know. Yeah. Because uh, it's ever changing. What's your, uh, <laughs> kind of off topic, but your email signature is like something about the more you practice, the luckier you get or something like that. I guess it's kind of the same. The mindset. harder you try, the luckier you the get. The harder you try, the luckier you get. That's, yeah. uh, I stole that from a <laughs> really good friend of mine. And it's, not even his email anymore. And I don't, and I think he told me at one point who said it, but a very, very dear friend of mine, uh, John Cobine, that was his email signature years and years and years ago. Maybe when email first came out, but hmm. uh, it always struck me as like, at first I was like, what? That makes no sense. But you know, the, the, the harder you try, the luckier you get. It's a, uh, you know, figure it out i guess if you know if you don't know you'll never know but i, I gotta start trying harder i haven't been all that yeah. lucky lately no it's you know you, you increase your odds of luck you know they're yeah the, the you know if you never go if you never try something you're never gonna get lucky at it i mean i'd rather be lucky than good any day it's just something that you know i don't know yeah mm-hmm. mark mark drury's not just he doesn't just fall down and land in front of 200 inch deer he tries really hard um you know constantly puts the the deck is stacked in his favor (laughs) so you know Mm -hmm. he keeps putting in the work it keeps paying off yeah yeah he's i mean he'll he'll say every now and then that he got lucky for something but i it that it i think it's a rare day that he truly gets lucky um, and the deer he kills, but yeah, I mean, he's lucky to have those deer and to live where he lives um, because you can't kill 200 inch deer where there's not 200 inch deer like we talked about. Um, he just happens to live in one of the best, you know, whitetail hotspots in the entire country, and and but even at that, there's a whole bunch of people that live there and they don't do what he does. Yeah, so sure. he just keeps uh, trying harder and getting luckier. There's. Now is also the time with, you know, trail cameras and, and things trying different techniques. I think now I, I would actually say probably just after hunting season ends while it's still cooler outside. But, you know, summertime is definitely the time to, to try new things as far as like shooting. You know, if you're going to try a different release or try different broadheads, um, if you're going to try different ammo in your gun or a different gun and optics i mean um you know now is the time to do that for one you don't want to do it right before you're going to go out and hunt and rush through it um because you want to you want to give it more than just one try to see if it really works uh, especially you know in archery i think you know pretty quick running through different ammo if it groups good or not through your rifle if your optic you look through it and it's it sucks then get a different one Mm -hmm. but in archery everything is just a slow process and you know now's the time if you want to try different broadheads you want to try shooting a a heavier arrow or a different release um, do it now so you have some time to actually give it a chance and see if it you know makes you better if you're more comfortable um i you know don't wait till 
two weeks before hunting season and go dust the dust off your bow and mm. start shooting it. That's just there's guys that can do it. I'm not one of them. <laughs> I can't. I can't get out of shape like that, or or, or you know, I get rusty archery wise. Uh, well, and I would. I got to knock that off early. Well, I, it, I would go so far as to say it's, you know, it's it's, you know, it's being an irresponsible hunter, in my opinion. If 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 you just take a bow or a gun, uh, you know, it, I think it's more. It happens more with rifles where they just feel like. I can go pull it out of the safe, throw a couple rounds in it, get up in the tree and, you know, point it at a deer and shoot one when it steps out. And then, you know, something's happened to the scope or whatever can happen has happened that caused that thing not to shoot right. Mm. And even worse, you know, in archery, it's that muscle memory. It's all that stuff we kind of went over that if, you know, you wait till two weeks before you're going to go hunt and you take your bow out and you shoot it half a dozen times you're like all right i'm good and then you go out and you know take the life of an animal for good reason but without due process and making sure your equipment and yourself are ready for that task sure. um yeah i see know. it you know i'm i i guess you could call me an artist so sometimes i see things visually in my brain i paint pictures and when we're talking about this i kind of Related back to, you know, you, you can get a new pair of boots and sure they're going to help you walk up a mountain, but if you put them on right before you walk up that mountain, guess what you're going to get? Blisters. Some blisters. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, kind of same thing. It's like if you if you want to try something new, work through, quote unquote, the boots so that when the time comes, you ain't getting freaking blisters. Yeah. yeah. There's And there's, you know, one of the podcasts that I think is, is going to be really fun for us to do is going into um, just the advances in product and technology and hunting and whether or not it's made us better or worse as hunters, whether it's made it harder or easier in reality. Um, but to your point, yeah, um, years ago when, you know, shot some competition archery stuff uh, at events, and there was a couple times that, you know, you start to feel like I'm pretty good. Um, you know, I was shooting better for me with all this nice, shiny new stuff. And guy comes out with a, you know, I don't know what year the bow was. It looked like an 80s model old bear something or other shooting these big giant telephone poles for arrows. You know, <laughs> his bow's probably shooting... I don't know, 200, 250 feet a second. Um, and the guy absolutely drilled me into the ground because <laughs> he didn't miss. And I was like, holy smokes, man. Like you, I, I know why you've never got a new bow. You just shoot the lights out of that thing. Like you're, you know, just, and he's like, yeah, I, you know, it's, it's not that I don't have the money or I don't want to. He's like, but, um, like I shoot this thing so well, it's just an extension of my arm. I've shot it for so long. It's like I can't bring myself to go get a new one. And I, one of the guys actually said, he's like, you know, I I went and tested some new bows, and I and I just I wasn't comfortable with them, couldn't shoot them, so I just stuck with what I had. Hmm. And it's like, you know, <laughs> if you, if you can shoot where you're aiming, you're done. It doesn't matter <laughs> yeah. 
what it is you're shooting. I mean, yeah, there's, you know, some speed, uh, you know, deer or whatever, duck in the arrow, but... If it ain't it, broke, don't fix it. Yeah, I mean, if, if you... I don't care how fast it is. I don't care how quiet it is. I don't care how much it costs um, or how many, you know, cylinder bricks it can shoot through. If you can't hit where you're aiming and you miss... What does all that matter? Well, it matters a little bit because it's our nature when something better and cooler comes out. Yeah. I mean, look at the bow industry over the last, you know, probably 15 years. They're putting out, you know, for a couple of years, every six months there was a new bow rolling out. Yeah. And it's not uncommon to go on and see people selling the one they bought six months ago because they got to have the new one. We're all kind of like that. We like the cool stuff. We like the new stuff. We think it's better. A lot of times it kind of is that, you know, mm-hmm. they figure out wh- where they could improve something and it's cool to have the newest thing. Um, I don't think there's anything wrong in that either. I mean, we all chase yeah. it, you know, and mm-hmm. me shooting competition pistol. It took me absolutely years to figure out. Um, it doesn't matter what gun I'm shooting. It's the shooter. Yeah. It, so, you know, it's, it, technology, like I said, this is going to be an awesome, a really fun podcast when, when we do that. But the, the technology, they're changing things to make it, I think the easiest term to use is, or the, or the whatever, for lack of a better term, they're, they're doing things to make it easier on us, whether it's less hand shock or faster or easier tuning. I mean, you'll see easier or simpler as the terms used. Um, what none of this can take the place of, though, is practice. Uh, it doesn't matter if you've got a, a brand new carbon bow with whatever arrows and broadheads, and you've spent five grand on this setup. If you don't practice it, that guy with a three hundred dollar bow from nineteen eighty four with gonna... those old, you know. Plastic fletchings and XX seventy five aluminum yeah. arrows. He's gonna he's gonna kill everything he shoots at. Oh yeah, um, yeah. and he's gonna outshoot you because he's put in the time and he's practiced with it. So bow fishing, you know, going back to that, oh, looking heck at, yeah. I mean, That's, you, we you know, it didn't matter what bow we put in your hands. Uh, I could not hit a dang fish <laughs> until you could. Until I until about I'd say probably my fourth or fifth time going back out with you. And, you know, of course, there was a moment where it clicked where you said sure. it's, it's not, uh, you know, uh, you're, you're not aiming down a whatever. It's just instinctive shooting. And that's where I was like, oh, OK. But, yeah. Um, it, it, was, it was until you put in the time and the repetitions. We'll call it practice. I mean, it was on the water. You weren't practicing at a target in the, in the yard. But right. Yeah. yeah, it was. But. On the job training. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And and to add to it, it sucked. <laughs> like, what? I I have, I'm very competitive, and I don't like. I'm a perfectionist. I don't like not being good at something. Um, and so for those of you out there that are like, man, like practicing all this stuff and putting in the work, I, I don't. It sucks. I don't want to do it. it. It'll pay off. Yeah. It paid off for me, and now I want to go bow fishing every night if Tim would let me. <laughs> so. There's, you know, it's, I mean, 
there's there's two terms. I think you're the one that said the other one, but my dad would always tell me practice makes perfect unless you practice wrong and then you're just perfectly wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and isn't it wasn't you that said practice makes permanent? Yep. Yeah. So for right or wrong, wherever you're falling in there, practice, um, you know, you, you want to make sure you're practicing the right way, but, it, you know, repetition, practice, use this summertime um, to get out and just practice. If you got a shooting range, go, you know, take your guns out. Whatever you think you might hunt with, take them out and check them. Make sure they're good before you get in the field. If you're, you know, archery, I would say I wouldn't let a month go by uh, in the summer. I, I think you should shoot realistic goal, let's say twice a week, you know, uh, during the complete off season. And then the closer it gets, I'd say by June, July, especially into August, you should shoot every day, whether it's five arrows or 50. The, but if know, all you have time for is five, yeah. And you walk out there cold, like you're going to be in the stand. You're not going to get to warm up and <laughs> shoot right. 20 shots at the target before yeah. you head to the it's stand. It's not bow fishing. <laughs> <laughs> Go out there, pull yeah. that bow down, say this is the moment, and shoot a cold arrow. Yeah. And shoot five arrows, keep those muscles in tune. If you're brand new to this, do not be results-oriented. Do not worry about where that arrow is flying as much as the process you need to learn because you can't do it right if you don't know how to check off the steps. Get you be, close. You'd be a little bit worried about where the arrow is going. Well, get close to your target. Just don't forget be like about me. where the target, you know, yeah. you know, hitting gnats at 40. Mm. Close your eyes, you know, get up there close enough that you can close your eyes and see what it feels like to make a good shot. And then work through that process because when you get to the stand and the, and the time comes and you don't want to get buck fever, if you stay process oriented, when he's standing out there and you start checking off your checklist and you go through your process, the next thing at the end of that process is a dead deer. I don't, do you know, I've thought about it over the years and I know like at 3D shoots and stuff, um, they'll have those mats or I want to say they're almost like screens that they'll hang behind the targets mm -hmm. so that, you know, not using broadheads, but using field points um, that they won't penetrate that, that screen or right. that mat. Um, I'll have to look and see, actually, have to, if we find some, we'll put in the, like the description of this or something. Um, I think what a lot of people are scared to do, um, you know, is, you don't have a lot of room to shoot. You don't want to be flinging arrows and bouncing it off the top of the target into your neighbor's yard. Yeah. Not that I've ever done that. Um, I'm just you asking, mean... asking for a friend. <laughs> um, I have a funny... Oh, so, you know, now I have one of those a huge, like, block, uh, big, what you see in a archery shop. Like, it's a five-by-five five yeah. target. Yeah, a big layered um, target. But, it, you know, those are expensive. So if you just go get a smaller target, but um, like I said, we'll, we'll look, see if we can find one, put in the mm -hmm. description, a, a mat or something that you can hang up just beyond your whatever target you're shooting at, whether it's a hay bale to start with or whatever, um, so that to your point, you're not necessarily worrying about hitting 
you know, a pie plate or a dinner tray that you can just start shooting to get comfortable and then slowly bring it in to, yeah. um, you know, where you want to be. Or yeah, I, I ended up, you know, I got, I got one of the big targets like you um, over the years just, and for Wiley, my son, I'm able to just tell him to forget where you just look to the center of the target. We don't, yeah. you know, I don't care if it's this big. Um, just look to the center and forget about everything else and just show me what it looks and feels like to make a good shot. And he works through that process and it's a way to push through that target panic that so many people have. Um, you know, your pins floating and Oh, there it is. And and you just punch everything. Um, you can work through that process. Um, and as you're checking off the list, just let the bow go and you'll learn to overcome that fear or what that panic that happens when you see your sight where you want it. The sight doesn't dictate when you pull the trigger. Um, it's not like, I mean, people aren't, you know, everybody tries to hold the bow perfectly still that pin perfectly. It's never going to quit moving. No, the best archers in the world are just letting it float and you become you get yourself, you accept that amount of float and you just start painting within the lines. And as it paints from within the lines, you start to add the pressure and it keeps painting and you keep adding the pressure and then boom, it goes off. And you'd be surprised at how you're stacking arrows on top of one another and afraid to shoot at your own arrow because you're going to cut the veins off of it. And the dot never quit moving. And I, we haven't looked into it yet. And I know we're getting close to wrapping this up, but you know, we were just, I was telling you about, uh, you remember Joel Turner. Absolutely. From, introduced Joel back, oh, I don't know what year that was. Um, went elk hunting with, with a good friend of ours, Justin Jackson, who um, knows Joel. and Probably around 2009. Probably. And I think at the time he was just won his first or second world championship elk bugling contest and heck of an archer, sharpshooter. I think he was working for the police department or a sniper, but at any rate, um, uh, he has developed a shot IQ, uh, and Justin was telling us more about it. I looked up the website and really need to get more into that and find out and have him on, um, for that process. He sort of, even back then, well, way before he, the shot IQ approach, you know, he was telling us about um, having a mantra you remember that when we mm -hmm. were, he was, yeah. you know, I'd never shot a recurve or instinctive and he was shooting it there in elk camp. And I don't know, remember what the mantra we came up with for me that, um, you know, to keep repeating as I would draw the bow and shoot. But yeah, that, that mental part of it, I'm really excited to see what that process is. Um, I know he was a month or so ago. It was on Joe Rogan's podcast. Yeah. Um, uh, so it must be uh, pretty legit because he's got some pretty big fans of it and has trained. I think um, there are actually pro athletes now reaching out to him for this mental uh, technique of, I don't know if it's confidence, um, but I'm pretty excited to, to dig into that and see what he's come up with. So maybe I can get rid of my terrible habits and, the target panic that sets in every now and then. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, I haven't looked into it in depth. I, I guarantee it's a it's a process oriented, um, whatever technique could, technique, um, and you know, the mental side of you know everything you do. Lanny Basham, you know, he's a Olympic gold medalist in shooting. Oh, yeah, Lanny. He says that you know the right amount of mental capacity to win the Olympics is just slightly more than let's have fun today, um, because you got to take the tension out of it and you got to take the stress out of it and just go perform what you know how to perform. Yeah, and I'm sure that Joel has got that down to probably the same. You know, it's it's not coincidence that amazing athletes like Tiger Woods, um, Michael Jordan, look at all of them and then go look and listen to what the pros say about them. Every single one of them talk about their mental game. And their practice. And well, people call me mental all the time. <laughs> we talk about your mental game, but it's a it's a it's a whole it's a medicated mental game. Different type of game. <laughs> I don't know what HD is exactly, but my doctor says I got 80 of them. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think that's uh, a good example of, you know, if nothing more than anything, just where to start this time of year. Um, And I guess, you know, the best way to simplify it is is pick something, start somewhere. Um, You know, if you wait, like we talked about on your motivation to do some of these things uh they'll never get done create a discipline and get to work speaking of we can't keep waiting for our idaho hunt coming up (laughs) i gotta start preparing for that well we got british columbia before we got idaho so oh yeah yeah you got a lot of work to do and you gotta quit waiting on your motivation (laughs) well well as we get into uh the next month or so, um, I think a topic that we need to cover is, you know, we sort of got into it here, but physical training, mental training for different types of hunts. Uh, and, you know, from Ashley's aspect of, you know, not a full-on beginner, never done it before at this point, but, you know, newer to, you know, more, I guess, seasoned. I mean, we don't live in the mountains so we're not training like that but um you know a lot of training whether it's crossfit or rucking you know the things that we do and and the difference of opinions the difference of ideas questions you might have that we can answer for people who are you know maybe looking to go do a a bigger hunt and are worried about the physical part of it and what they can do and um be a Mm. good good topic yeah Yeah. uh, (laughs) (laughs) i will have a lot of insight (laughs) we'll keep you all updated all right. Well, anything else that y'all want to cover on the summertime lull or the blues or the summertime preparation? I don't know exactly. I think more than anything, it. learn to enjoy the work. Um, it really makes the hunt that much sweeter. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it, and if you can learn to enjoy, would you say learn to enjoy the work? Yeah. Yeah. You know, the work that you put in and the embracing the suck um, yes. becomes the enjoyment for you. Um, it's so rewarding um, because you just, you work your tail off and then it finally, that hunt and that moment comes 
and you know what you've put into it, and it's it's that much sweeter. Yeah. Yeah. Hashtag embrace the suck. Yes. Embrace the suck. Keep up with IOTV on social media for all their latest news, tips, and giveaways.